Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. Uh, this is sure to be an interesting episode, uh, given the moves that the Orioles made uh just about 24 hours ago with their middle infield from the 2020 season basically gone. Hansra Alberto non-tendered, and in the big move that we're going to discuss, Jose Iglesias traded uh, to the Los Angeles Angels in exchange for pitching prospects Garrett Stallings and Gene Pinto. Um, we're going to get into that as well as what the fallout will be with Iglesias uh, no longer in Oriole. Uh, we're going to look at some potential shortstop options, guys that we see as fits. Um, and how some prospects in the minor leagues uh, could benefit from uh, clearing of the middle infield depth at the major league level. And finally, we're going to wrap it up with Bob Phelan, one of my co-hosts, along with Nick Stevens. Bob is going to break down his projected rosters for the minor leagues, which ran on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com earlier this week. Bob did a very good job projecting the four full-season levels, which players will be there, and their watchability ratings. He's going to explain all of that a little bit later in the show, but first we're going to get into the big news, which is the trade that sent Jose Iglesias to the Angels. As noted, the deal was for Garrett Stallings and Gene Pinto, two pitchers with completely different backgrounds. Stallings was a pick by the Angels in the 2019 draft. He was their 21st-ranked prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, before the trade, despite the fact he had yet to pitch in a professional game. Uh, He didn't get any game action in 2019, and then obviously the 2020 season shut down because of the pandemic. He did not pitch at all. However, he did pitch an instruction, reportedly looked good, and this is someone that the Orioles had their eye on apparently for a while. Uh, Pinto is a soon-to-be 20-year-old who posted good numbers in the Dominican Summer League in 2019. I would have to think, given his age, we might see him at low A in 2021, but... That remains to be seen. Uh, The big news, though, is the Orioles are moving on from Iglesias, uh, who came in last year as a free agent, put up really good numbers in 39 games at the plate. Um, Injuries limited his time at shortstop a little bit more than what I think the Orioles would have liked. But when he was at shortstop, he was very effective defensively. The Orioles picked up a $3.5 million club option on Iglesias earlier this offseason, so... I think a lot of fans may have believed that Iglesias was a lock to be the shortstop on opening day. Um, The reaction to this trade from some Orioles fans, especially judged by the discussion that's still going on the Baltimore Sports and Life message board as of Thursday night, um, a lot of people don't like this move. Uh, Nick, what's your reaction to the trade? I mean, I fully understand where a lot of Orioles fans are coming from. If you're looking at this as like another salary dump, even though, like we were talking before we came on, that's probably not the case here with this trade. Uh, and it, it does, you know, make the team a little less fun to watch at the major league level. Like, I'm not going to, you know, dismiss that at all. Uh, it's frustrating. Orioles fans want to watch winning baseball. You know, we have kind of rebuild fatigue, I think, is setting in here with Orioles fans, and we're ready to watch some, some good winning baseball. My first thought when the trade happened was, A, is this a real Ken Rosenthal account, first of all? Second, it was, I'm going to have to watch Pat Vileka at shortstop now, and it's going to give me a brain aneurysm. And I don't know why he triggers me so much, but he just does. Uh, Then I thought, maybe we're going to get Reed Detmers, a nice left-handed pitching prospect out of Louisville. But then I was like, no, it is Michael Elias. He can pull off a deal like that, but uh, it didn't happen. Um, but I think I like the two guys that we got out of this trade. Like you mentioned, Stallings, by all reports, he hasn't pitched, so there's nothing we can really 
base anything off of right now except some of his college numbers, which are really good. He doesn't walk anybody. Uh, Michael Ice seems to think he's going to be a fast riser. I've seen on a couple different websites his ETA is 2022. Uh, so clearly two years he, he's up in the major leagues. Uh, someone that Michael Ice thinks is a legitimate starting rotation prospect. Uh, you add Kevin Smith, who they got from the Mets at the trade deadline. You, the Orioles have added two guys who are going to be – evaluators believe will be starting rotation prospects uh, for who Miguel Castro and, and Jose Iglesias. So uh, I think it's just another good trade. I mean, there's the issue about who is going to play shortstop, who's going to play second base for sure. But, you know, Iglesias put up great numbers, but there was nothing close to his career numbers. And it was a very, very, very small sample size in a very weird year. So as much as it does hurt, I, I wasn't as connected to Jose Iglesias and I'm fine with this deal. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I can, again, like Nick said, I can understand the frustration losing Alberto and Iglesias on the same day within minutes of each other. And this is a guy that was a ton of fun to watch last year. I know Matt Kremnitzer on Twitter always loves to show the play he made uh, on a relay throw to the plate and say that's one of the best plays of last year. I agree. But at the same time, this is a guy who we praised the signing when we got him for a year and then an option. And not everybody thought it was a slam dunk great thing where other teams would have done it. We got him for cheap. He happened to be red hot for the 45 games or so that he played, mostly at DH because he was hurt most of the year, which hopefully he can recover. But he's getting older. He had a career year in a short amount of games. He missed about 25% of the season. To me, this is a – when I first saw the trade, I was – I wasn't very familiar with the guys we're getting back. So I'm like, all right, let me see what's going on. Looking into it, he's the 21st ranked. uh, Stallings is the 21st ranked guy in the Angel system, and they don't have the best system. So a little disappointing at first glance, but then you think it came from that same draft that Elias was scouting in his first year. You know, he was deep into that draft. He liked Stallings. I think he wanted to get him in that draft at some point. Clearly had been scouting him at the Instructional League. You don't know the development that's happening with these guys in 2020. He might have made a big leap forward with something. We'll just never know until there's any baseball play next year. But he, I think this was a target. This was a targeted trade by Elias. And Pinto is a guy that another lottery international guy you can throw in there. And hopefully he catches on it, whether it be in the rotation or the bullpen at some point. Yeah, just to give some quick background on Stallings, um, with the trade taking place, uh, MLB Pipeline has him ranked as the Orioles' 26th best prospect. Um, he will go one spot behind Ryland Bannon and one spot ahead of Cody Sedlock. Interestingly, he knocks out another player who was recently just acquired in a trade, um, A.J. Graffinino, who had ranked 30th before this trade. Uh, he's now on the uh, just on the outside of MLB Pipeline's top 30. But... Um, this is from MLB Pipeline's scouting report. One line in particular stood out to me. He rarely hurts himself with walks, allowing just 1.3 per nine innings at Tennessee. So as Nick said, this is someone who never walks anybody, not to mention he pitched in the SEC, which, as we all know, is Michael Elias' favorite college baseball conference. Um, so I'm sure the factor that he was in a very competitive conference, putting up those types of numbers, jumped out at the Orioles. Now... This is a little bit of a different pitching prospect, I think, in that he's a starter who's, I don't like using this term a lot, but I'm lacking a better one right now, a crafty righty, because his fastball is probably going to top out in the lower 90s, uh, but his command is so good. He was successful in a very competitive conference. He looked good, apparently, in a little bit of development time that he had away from competitive game action this year. And I reasonably think he's someone that is could see a good number of innings at Double A, even if he doesn't start there this year. Yeah. And also looking at those Tennessee numbers, um, you look at his strikeout numbers; they were like five per game as a freshman, and they dipped down to four per game as a sophomore. But then his junior year, he was struck out, striking out over nine guys per game. Uh, through two nine-inning shutouts against Georgia and Ole Miss. So, I mean, those weren't like early season playing like a Niagara or some random school. Like Those are other SEC games later in the year where he was pitching these shutouts. Um, that's Yeah, he definitely is. It's a good point that he's a different type of prospect that Michael Ice is bringing in and that he's – 
he's got this really high floor, I think. I think he's not going to be a guy that maybe develops into like a one or two, obviously. He's not going to reach you know the Grayson Rodriguez or D.L. Hall level, but he's a, seems like a good, safe, solid prospect. And, I mean, he's he's a guy from my neck of the woods, down Chesapeake, Virginia, so I'm going to root for him. I, I love it. They, they're getting all these more local guys from around here. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, his floor could be like a Thomas Eshelman with a few more mile per hour on the fastball. Uh, another guy that had a lot of success in college and didn't walk anybody. Hopefully he strikes out a little bit more than him. But, yeah, I mean, you got there's a lot to like here. He's Again, this is Iglesias we're talking about, who we basically pick up the option and with the idea of trading him with the right offer comes along. So it's almost as if they just not even bought a prospect because they didn't end up paying a salary, but you pick up the option and trade him for two prospects when you – they, but if it was really a salary dump, they just wouldn't have picked up the option at all to me. Yeah, I agree completely. And the other thing that I would point out about Iglesias is that I understand it does make the Orioles worse on paper. And it leaves them with a lot of complications about how they're going to handle the middle infield um, next year. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But the one thing I would point out with Iglesias is that this is a player who, in all likelihood, was not going to be an Oriole after July 31st. And in an alternate timeline, Iglesias is hitting closer to his career numbers, so he's probably hitting 260, 270 with a low on-base percentage, low slugging percentage. Uh, the Angels are somewhere around 500, competing in what's likely going to be a weaker AL East than we've seen in a few years. Uh, the Orioles get Pinto, who's pitching at low A, straight up for Iglesias, and people are saying, why didn't Mike Elias trade Iglesias when his value was higher? Why didn't he trade him when he had a full year of control? Why did we only get this low-A pitcher for our starting shortstop? That would have come up. And, you know, I don't know that Pinto, it would have only been Pinto in that situation. But I do think the return would have been weaker, even if Iglesias was hitting more in that, like, say, 280 to 290 range. um, It's still half a year. And And for a guy that's in his 30s, so... You're not necessarily looking at him as a long-term piece if you do trade for him. I, I think that if Mike Elias had held off on trading Iglesias, and as expected, the Orioles were out of the playoff race by July, he gets traded on July 31st, the return would have been worse. Yeah, yeah. and you don't know if he's going to get hurt. Like I mentioned earlier, what if he does... Iglesias was signed knowing that he was going to be a stopgap option to the Gunnar Hendersons and you know, Westberg wasn't drafted yet, but we'll use Gunnar Henderson. He's a stopgap option until the Orioles can get somebody better. He wasn't going to be around at the end of next season regardless. And what if he does go out there and underperforms or even just performs at his, his league numbers, his career numbers? Or what if he gets hurt and now the Orioles are stuck with him and they can't deal him even for a guy like Pinto? Uh, and then you're... You know, it doesn't really hurt as much as you know. I, I think a lot of people make it out to be, but you know, it's. I I I just I get the frustrations. You know, Orioles fans want to see a winning club, and Jose Iglesias is really good. And the fact that you know there was that note. I remember Rakubako saying before they signed Iglesias like the year before how they checked into him and he was this bad clubhouse guy. But it seems by all reports this year he was a great clubhouse guy, and you do want that for a young team like the Orioles. But at the same time, you signed him knowing that he wasn't going to be around for very long. And you're able to get a top 30 prospect and a guy you think could be a starter in your rotation in two years. It's a good deal. And we also signed him 90% for his glove to give uh, some stability up the middle for these young pitchers. And we didn't sign him to hit 400 with 18 doubles in 20 games or whatever it was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the Angels are basically trading for a younger, cheaper version of Andrew Elton Simmons, who was a free agent for them. So. He's not this big blockbuster piece. It's more along the lines of the VR trade to me than the, you know, one of the great trades that Elias made at the deadline. Right, and I think that the Angels are, is, you know, kind of, I mentioned earlier that the AL West, AL West will probably be weaker this year than it has in a while because the Astros don't look like they're going to be as strong. They could lose their entire starting outfield through free agency. They're not going to have Justin Verlander. The A's are set to probably lose a lot of players in free agency. Um, I like some of what's in Seattle, but I don't think that they're quite at contending level yet. So the Angels had to make a move to make themselves better for 2020 because they can maybe sneak in an AL West title this year. Uh, The Orioles, building long-term. 
Um, Iglesias, you know, you can be a last place or a fourth place team with Jose Iglesias, or you can be one without him and get two pitching prospects who long-term provide some value. I, looking at that, I'm always, when you're going through a rebuild, going to take what can you get long-term. Even if only one of these pitchers work out, works out or they are major leaguers, but they don't quite hit their ceilings, you still only gave up a year of Jose Iglesias. Yeah, I pulled this quote from Michael Elias last night that I really liked, and I I know it's a lot of people seem frustrated with Michael Elias. There seem to be a lot of national writers uh, going after the Orioles today, which I didn't read any of those articles because I don't care what the national media has to say about the Orioles. But I did like this quote where he said, we've had some catch up to do and we're now seeing the farm system and the young talent on the major league roster too rise to the level of getting towards the top of the league. And that's what we want to see. We also still, we are also still making up for a lack of normal level of international signing activity with this organization for a long time. I think that's a part of when we do trades like this, we try to get a young international, international player tossed in every time we can. We haven't been at that level and that's going to continue to sting here for a few years. End quote. You know, that's that's what it is. He's had to build an analytics department from scratch. He had to build an entire international scouting infrastructure from scratch. Uh, this farm system was one of the worst farm systems in baseball. Um, you know, I wrote on the board last night when I started covering writing in the, about the Orioles minor leaguers like five years ago. Uh, the guy writing the website that I wrote for, which is gone now. There's some good articles on that website that I wish you could have, but it's just all gone. But um, he was like, write, write about Joe Gunkel. Who is Joe Gunkel? No one. I mean, he was decent for like a minor league guy a couple of years ago, but a Joe Gunkel isn't surviving in the Orioles farm system anymore, and that's great. It's we're catching yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Elias had a lot of good quotes. I thought last night, uh, I especially liked the one where he said, "We're still in the talent acquisition phase, and soon we will turn it around and you know basically go for the jugular," which was nice to hear. A lot of people are like, "Yeah, right. I believe it when you see it," but. I don't know. I liked hearing it. Even the quote about Alberto and can't afford him because of the arcane infrastructure of the arbitration system. I think people made a little bit more out of that than they might have should have. But yeah, I don't know. He's not doing anything that he hasn't already said that he was going to do. Like he he laid out his plans when he arrived, and he's carrying out those plans. So I again. You know, yes, the losing sucks, and it's going to be another long year. I'm tired of tuning out three weeks into the season as well. Um, not everybody can find joy in watching Easton Lucas pitch for Del Marva like we can, but you know, it's he's doing what he said he was going to do. So stick and with I, it. Yeah, and I totally understand that it's hard to trust. You know, with Angelos as ownership has been, you just it's hard to trust what he's saying because. We've heard it all before, but I, I honestly think he is doing exactly what he set out to do, and so far, so good. The hard part is coming up soon. Well, now we're going to address the other side of this, which is how it's going to affect the Major League roster um, for next year, because now the Orioles are out. They're starting second baseman in Alberto. They're starting shortstop in um, Jose Iglesias. They did, however, keep Pat Vileko around, a move the three of us really did not see coming. Uh, they gave, they ended up tendering him a one-year contract. Um, as of the last I looked, the terms on that have not been reported. But in addition to him, they have Yolmer Sanchez, who they claimed off waivers from the White Sox earlier this offseason, a former Gold Glove winner at second base. Uh, Rio Ruiz is still around. Ramon Urias is still around. Richie Martin is still around and recovering from a wrist injury. And Ryland Bannon, who was added to the 40-man roster, uh, just about a week or two ago to uh, be protected from the Rule 5 draft is also there and I think right now in the mix for an opening day roster spot unless the Orioles really add to their infield depth. So I'm going to start with uh, you, Bob, but I want to throw this out there. I think that the best options right now, if I were looking at the roster for second base and shortstop on opening day, I would put Bannon at second and see what he can do with the bat. Have Pat Vileka there waiting in case he does struggle and proves to need more time in the minors. Otherwise, I'm moving Vileka around the corner spots. He's not touching shortstop at all. <laughs> and then I'm going to put Yomer Sanchez at short, because at least he has some major league time. I was looking this up earlier. I think he's only played five games at the major league level at shortstop, but he at least has some major league time that I think the dependability there is a little bit more than what you get out of Vileka. 
I'm a little bit more comfortable with him than I am with Urias. I think Martin's going to need recovery time, but do you think that the Orioles are going to stick with their internal options, or do you think they're going to look out of the trademark of the free agent market and bring more options in? I think they're definitely going to sign someone for cheap, kind of like they did with the Glacius last year, or maybe even cheaper. I think they're definitely going to try to get someone that has a good glove at shortstop, even if it's not a guy that, you know, is a name value that even Iglesias had last year. I just think they're going to want a veteran in there to man the position, at least to start the season. And I think you want to keep Yolmer Sanchez at second base where he's won a gold glove before he seems to excel at that position more than any other. And then I think, unfortunately, Rio Ruiz is going to probably start opening day as the third baseman again. But I do think Bannon might make the opening day roster and split time with Ruiz at third and maybe make some appearances at second base. And if we don't acquire anyone, I expect Richie Martin to go back to the starting shortstop role, at least in the beginning of the year. But I do think they're going to sign somebody. Yeah, I I don't know. There's so many different ways you could go. I, I think... Ruiz is back at third base. I would not be surprised to see them put Bannon at second base just because it seems like I remember reading, I think of Steve Molesky who had an interview with him not too long ago where it said that the Orioles were working him out at second base pretty extensively and he was getting a lot of work there. Uh, so I'm wondering if maybe the Orioles kind of assumed or they figured that Alberto was going to be in this situation and they're going to be in need of a second baseman next year uh, and so maybe they're trying to work him in there and say when spring training starts whenever that is it's your job to lose um, you know he, he might be 5'7 180 but you know there's good pop in that bat and he's someone that we all like as a hitter um, but the rest of it I mean there's also Ramon Arias is still on this team and played pretty well in a few games that he was there um, you know Richie Martin does have the options available so he can go down he's probably going to need time like Zach said uh, Pat Vileka also has an option uh, I saw so the Orioles can send him down kind of this uh, use him as a utility guy and stash him away maybe uh, Urias and Vileka and Martin are kind of like the Baltimore Norfolk shuttle riding that all year and it's just kind of an, an every day it's when when the lineup gets tweeted out or posted by the Orioles it's what is the infield going to look like because it could be something different almost every single day but I don't I don't there are good options I mean if we want to talk about maybe some possible other options Orioles could bring in but um, there's not a lot of great talent out there obviously for what the Orioles are willing to spend yeah it's clear to me that even if Angelton Simmons sits on the market for a while and his numbers drop or if D.D. Gregorius's numbers drop, they're still not going to drop to the level where the Orioles are going to put a one-year deal out there uh, to bring them in. Nick, you and I were talking about uh, one player in particular before we went on air as a guy that we would not be surprised to see the Orioles target, and that's Freddie Galvis. Uh, what are you, because I know, Nick, you ran a lot of numbers on Galvis, and you actually covered him for a little bit when you wrote about the Padres. Uh, do you see him as a possible fit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's you would be signing him for the same reason you signed Iglesias for the glove, and whatever he does at the plate is a bonus. Uh, and he's he's a lot of fun to watch with the glove. Although I, I mentioned before we hopped on, in 2018 and 2019 combined with the Padres and Reds, he had 23 outs above average according to Baseball Savant, which is phenomenal. Uh, but last year in Cincinnati, he was at negative three. So I don't know what happened. Like I. I Tuned into a lot of Reds games to watch Trevor Bauer and Luis Castillo pitch, uh, but I have no idea what happened with Freddie Galvis defensively. But I think he's a guy that you can probably bring in on like a million, million and a half dollars and bring in. Um, you know, there's another guy, I think just looking at the free agent list, you know, maybe someone like a, I noticed Chris Owings. I mean, this is the field, the, the, the tier of player you're looking at. He plays every single position, including all three outfield spots. We know Michael Elias loves those versatile guys. Um, and then you got the Rule 5 draft as options, but I think Galvis is actually a really good fit. Yeah, that's the name. I didn't get to talk about this with you guys, but that was the name I had circled as well. Just seemed like you can definitely get him cheap enough. And he's a proven to be a solid defender at and better than that even. So that's the guy for me. I would be kind of surprised if we didn't sign him. But a couple other names I wrote down were JT Riddle, uh, Adini Hecaveria, Jordy Mercer, and... Ehar Adrianza. I think those are guys that at least have a solid glove and at least hold their own. But I want Freddie Galvis. 
I won't. I mean, we won't be. It's not an exciting signing, but it will at least it kind of fill that void in our our dark hearts after the trade. Well, I think if you if you go into the season with Yomer Sanchez at second and Freddie Galvis at short, I know that 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 sentence sounded really boring, and it is. <laughs> but the bottom line is you at least have two dependable gloves up the middle. I know, as Nick said, yeah. that Galvis's numbers weren't great last year, but I'm kind of willing to write that off as a fluke until I see more evidence that his defense actually has regressed. And then, but the thing is that neither of them are likely to hit well enough that if a Ryland Bannon or a Mason McCoy even is knocking on the door of the major leagues uh, during the season that the Orioles would have a problem on their hands. They can put one of those guys on the bench, move them around a little bit. Sanchez can play all over the infield. Galvis has a few other positions he can play. So you're not just locked into a second baseman and a shortstop. Uh, do you think, I'll start with you, Dick, do you think the pressure is up on Rio Ruiz a little bit because now you're looking at Pat Vileka, uh Yomer Sanchez, who can also play some third base, and Ryland Bannon in the mix for roster spots? Yeah, like I said, it, it could end up being just this random every single day is a new lineup. Or it could be, it, it, I get the sense that Elias is going to go out and get a shortstop. I don't think you would look at the Rule 5 draft just because you have so many options right now on your roster that anyone you get in the Rule 5 draft is not going to be better than a Richie Martin or even a Pat Vileka, honestly, looking at some of the, the guys that are available. Uh, but if you do sign a guy like Freddie Galvis for super cheap, um, you know, maybe you you do stick him at short. You've got a really good defender there. You've got a gold glover at second base. Neither can hit, but you're at least it's protection for these young pitching staff. And then you, I'm putting Bannon at third base, and that's your lineup. And ideally, Ryan Mountcastle at first base, but that's another discussion. Or Trey Mancini, either way, yeah. bopper. Yeah. But and to go back to Galvis for a second, I mean that's a, again if he you sign him. And say he starts the year hot, he's batting 280 with a couple home runs, and he's providing th- that defense that he showed in 2018 and 2019. You could maybe flip him for another Gene Pinto or an international guy or something like that. So uh, the other names I mentioned, I don't see as very flippable for much value, but I think Galvis has enough name value that there's something there for that. But I like the idea of Mancini, Sanchez, Galvis, and Bannon in the infield. That sounds pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I in think, a boring way. Yeah, <laughs> I I think either way, Bannon is kind of in that has to be in that conversation more for an opening day job. Whereas before, I think if you were assuming that Alberto and Iglesias were coming back, you could pencil Bannon in, but he wasn't going to get a lot of at bats unless he was able to you know take over third base. But now I think there's a little bit more flexibility with how the Orioles could use him. Um, as far as Pat Vileka is concerned. As I said, I don't want to see him at shortstop, and I think that that should be another incentive for Mike Elias to go out and get a shortstop, just because you don't want to go, you don't want to have what happened last year, where Iglesias would get hurt, and the only option you had at shortstop was Pat Vileka. So you want a little bit, you want some more options there. Bannon's not going to be that guy, so you're probably looking at Yomer Sanchez unless they make another move. So. I would have to think that they do go out and get a Galvis or someone along those lines, put Sanchez at second, and then if Ruiz struggles in spring training, uh, he could be DFA'd at the very end, and Bannon and Vileka are getting the time at third base. Yeah. yeah. And I'm looking for Taron Vavra to make uh, the starting role at second base at some point over the summer. I'm just thinking about these pitchers. I don't want Michael Bauman coming up and in his first start having Pat Vileka and Stevie Wilkerson as a double play combo. There's oh a name God. that we completely forgot about. Stevie Wilkerson is back and in the mix, but I don't want that to be the double play combo behind him with Chris Davis at first base and Rio at third base. Like We're going to ruin Bauman's career as soon as it starts. I you got to have something behind these guys. Thanks for giving me nightmares tonight, Nick. <laughs> so... Um... Flipping over now to a new topic, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Bob has projected the uh, rosters for the four full-season uh, minor league teams and likely the only minor league teams uh, for 2021 and beyond. So what Bob did was he looked at uh, basically the starting nine, a DH, and then a few bullpen arms. 
Uh, he did this, as I mentioned, from low A up to triple A. So, Bob, can you kind of give us a little bit of rundown of how you did this and maybe what you learned while working on it? Yeah, you know, this is this was a lot of fun to put together. Um, this is something I would just do in my own time when I'm bored, usually. Just, you know, look at the previous year, which yeah, it was a little bit tougher now with the way 2020 was set up, but I basically just looked at the 40-man roster, slowly filled in the spots, uh, looked at um, the previous 2019s, like who ended where, so where would they realistically end up the next year. It was almost, it's just like putting together a puzzle. And um, I looked at who was invited to fall instructs, who was, you know, at the summer alternate camp to see who they, you know, have more on the top of their mind when they're putting these rosters together. And, yeah, um, it was, it turned out that we have a pretty good <laughs> farm system. You know, there's a couple spots where I had to dig a little bit deeper, like in double A in the outfield and uh, a couple other places like uh, low A. A couple spots um but for the most part i mean this was not that tough to put together which is saying something compared to where we were a few years ago so i'm looking now um at the watchability ratings for each level uh and just to give people an example triple a uh shows up as eight out of a possible ten um while low a is eight and a half and then seven and a half for high a and Eight for double A as well. I couldn't remember the actually, rating uh, there. So how does it come up with the ratings? Triple A was a nine. I actually had oh. that as the highest. Um, that was a little more. No, no worries. That was a little more uh, subjective, and I, I, I didn't want to have any ties, so that's why they're all different scores. But I just, I just wanted to add a little bit of flair to it, and I, I'm interested to see how you would rank these two. But I thought Triple A was the most exciting, just because. Usually AAA is a wasteland for 4A players and guys who are on the fringe of the roster. But the way Elias does things, he wants these players to earn their promotions, and that includes AAA. And there's a rotation full of guys that we should expect to see uh, at the major league level sooner than later. The bullpen is stacked, at least at the end, with, uh, I'm assuming, Zach Pop stays in the in the organization. Cody Sedlock I have moving up. Isaac Matson, a guy we've talked about a lot. And honestly, I think every single player that I listed for AAA could make an appearance at the Major League level uh, in 2021. And some of our best prospects are there. And AA, that was a, another tough one for me to rate because we have the top three prospects in the system with Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, and D.L. Hall all on the same team, which is extremely exciting, especially since those pitchers are pitching to Rutschman. But then I have to look at the complete roster, and there's some names in there that... You know, they're more organizational filler, and if there's a, a night where Rutschman is getting a day off and it's not one of the days that Rodriguez Hall or even Bradish are pitching, then it's not exactly the same thrill as any other day. And I just went down a line like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and, and Nick, I'm, I know that you're uh, thinking about this a lot as someone in Virginia who I'm guessing is planning to see a lot of Norfolk Tides games next year if you can. Uh, this Norfolk roster looked really impressive to me, and what I thought was interesting was, as Bob said, there's going to be a lot of guys who probably are going to move up to Baltimore during the year, and at some of those spots, the players in A are just as good, if not better. I mean, certainly if you're following Norfolk next year, you're waiting for the day that Adley Rutzman uh, gets promoted from A and is catching there. But even, you know, just to throw out an example... Ritchie Martin uh, is who Bob has penciled in as the shortstop at AAA. At AA, the shortstop is Adam Hall. Now, if Adam Hall is has a good first half at Bowie, or I'm sorry, AA, uh, if he has a good first half at AA, he could be in the mix for AAA, and that's another good prospect moving up the ranks. Yeah, I thought, I thought these are awesome, and I enjoyed, especially a lot of other people's feedback on this. Uh, I'm glad people are reading this and saying that this minor system is actually really fun now. Um, but yeah, when you talk about just AAA, 
Yes, I grew up right down the road from Harbor Park. I am a huge Tides fan in general. I'm not going to lie. I watch a lot of minor league baseball on MILB TV, and I don't think I've missed a single Tides game in about three years. Um, just to, just to, so you get an idea of my fandom there. But and watching the Norfolk Tides, but with like Christopher Bostic as the starting second baseman and leadoff hitter, is not fun. Uh, but this roster is yeah awesome. All these guys, McKenna Diaz and Chris Shaw, even monster home run hitter. Uh, all those guys could see time in the major leagues. Like you said, Martin Bannon, Vavra, Tyler Nevin, uh, again, another guy. I'm wondering if, if Tyler Nevin starts out the year hot and DJ Stewart is ice cold, You know, do you flip those two guys and send DJ Stewart back and bring up Tyler Nevin? It's fun. And the starting rotation, I think, is unbelievable. Um, Bauman, Lothar, Lothar, Alexander Wells, Bruce Zimmerman, and Kevin Smith as your number five starter in AAA who after that trade, the New York Mets themselves said, that guy was probably going to be our number five pitcher next year at the major league level. And we've got him number five on our triple-A roster. Um, it's definitely going to be a really good team to watch. All their games are on MILB TV. Definitely check that out. Uh, Bowie, you know, Bowie uh, you know, the lineup, other than Rutschman, is hit or miss. I like Robert Newstrom. I kind of like Zach Jarrett. Uh, but it's, when you're talking about kind of major league guys, it's a little spotty. But that pitching staff, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Kyle Bradish, Brendan Hanafy, and Blaine Knight. I think a lot of Orioles fans still want to see Blaine Knight do something. And again, that's a guy who's a fringe rotation guy on our double-A roster. Um, so, yeah, you just see a lot of depth. Even when you get into high A, you know, high A is kind of reverse of double-A. I love that lineup. But the pitching staff, you know, you, when you got guys like Gray Fenter, Drew Rahm, Leonardo Rodriguez is someone, I kind of think of Miguel Castro when I think of Leonardo Rodriguez, tall, lanky, can be explosive, but he's probably not going to be super great most nights with that control. Um, but when you look at that lineup and you got Jordan Westberg and Toby Welk and Anthony Servideo in the infield, that's a good infield. Uh, so yeah, there's uh, everywhere you go, every single night in the minor leagues, hopefully we can get out there to the ballparks. Um, seasons are going to be shorter, I know, and we're finding out where the affiliates will be exactly. But I think if we're allowed to go out to the ballparks any single night of the week at any of those four ballparks, you're going to see a really good game. I mean, even if you go down to the very low A ball and you might get to see Dan Hammer pitch to Jordan Cannon as the catcher, that is the <laughs> ultimate battery mate right there. So, yeah, it's it's a good system. It's so much better than it was. It's one of the top systems in the league. Potential is a dangerous word, I always like to say, but there's a lot of potential here. So, uh, Bob, I wanted to ask you this. You put um, Heston Kerstad in at low A, but I know that some of that was influenced by the fact, or a lot of it was probably influenced by the fact that uh, his college season was cut short. He didn't go to the alternate training set at Bowie. Uh, he was pulled back from Sarasota, didn't go there because of a non-baseball-related medical issue. If he does end up at low A, how quickly do you think he's promoted? Yeah, as long as he performs relative to expectations, I I believe he'll move up fairly quickly. One of my reasonings is obviously the time that he missed in the fall. Also, I feel like that outfield in high A, Johnny Reiser, Zach Watson, Kyle Stowers, I mean, I feel like they deserve a chance to play together in high A, and it just gave me an excuse to hold him back, at least in the beginning, until one of those guys maybe earns their way up to double A, and then he can move up to... I, th I think he's going to move pretty quickly. Um, and another big name at low A is Gunnar Henderson, who I know that um, all three of us are really excited to see. Uh, Henderson would be at shortstop, and then Kobe Mayo at third base. Is there going to be a left side of the infield that has more power than those two guys? It Take any team at the low A level next year, not just the league that the Orioles happen to have their affiliate in. Any league at the low A level. Is there going to be a team that has that much power on the left side of his infield? I can't imagine <laughs> it. I mean, that's pretty good right there. Yeah, I know with you know Mayo, there's a lot of questions because it's, you know, kind of this raw power. He's a younger guy, but most reports on him coming out of the draft this year are really positive. Everything you're hearing about Henderson, and we talked about this a little bit on a show recently, has been positive based on what he did um, at the alternate site in Bowie and then down in Sarasota for instructs. So Henderson is someone I have really high expectations for. 
um, next year. Um, so, Bob, you made this roster, obviously, before the Iglesias trade. Uh, now you have Garrett Stallings coming in along with Dean Pinto. If you had to make room for them right now, where would you put them uh, to start the year? I updated my spreadsheet after the trade, and I have Garrett Stallings as the number three starter in high A, right behind Drew Rahm and Gray Fenter. I just feel like he seems to have a little more polish than the other guys that we got from the Angels uh, in the previous trade for Dylan Bundy, like Zach Peak and Kyle Burnovich and Easton Lucas from the VR trade. I have them in low A rotation. I think Stallings uh, deserves to st- start one step higher, especially seeming how high they are of him. And then as for Pinto, I think I, th- I think he'll start the year at the complex, maybe hold him back a little bit. Or maybe he can start in the low A bullpen and try to work his way up from there. But I do think he'll be at low A at some point uh, this coming season. And you still have, we're still going to have the Gulf Coast League too, apparently. Uh, I'm guessing. So I think I think I saw there every organization is going to be allowed 180 uh, minor leaguers. So you've got uh, hopefully we got the Gulf Coast League at least again next year. Uh, which is another another level here. Hopefully, a twenty round draft next year as well. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there. I think you start seeing more of those international guys moving in, which I think is cool. Which you had a few of them on here. I know in in low A, um, maybe even you know Luis Ortiz pulling up there in the low A roster would be a lot of fun to watch. But you mentioned the power with that low A roster of Kobe Mayo and Gunnar Henderson on the left side, but you've also got Hudson Haskin who can hit home runs. Heston Kerstad and JC Encarnacion, who will probably strike out 50% of the time, but he's probably also can hit you 10, 15, 20 home runs. Um, I think wherever low A is, if that's uh, Aberdeen or whoever that may be, that's that could end up being one of the sleeper teams in this system, I think. Yeah. Actually, one of the most interesting things that I, I mean, I kind of already had it in mind, but it really solidified it, is that double A AA and triple A, that is what Elias was able to do with what Dan Duquette left behind, like making the most of the situation that he was left with. That's double A and triple A. High A and low A, that's all Elias all the time. This is seemingly what his in, uh, vision of the organization is. It's depth in starting, it, depth at pitcher. I have no idea who's going to break from the low A rotation, like break into it uh, out of the Dan Hammers and the you know, uh, what's it, the guy uh, that you know from the CAA, Nick? Um, oh, McCl- McElarty. Yeah, yeah like, McClarty. Yeah, like, I, there's so, and there's so many guys, there's so much depth there that I'm just assuming some people are going to break out and some are going to kind of fade into the background, whereas in the higher levels you have the guys we've been hearing about for a while. And just these lineups in low A and high A are pretty stacked with the talent that he's drafted in the past couple of years. So I just thought that was interesting how there's just this clear delineation right down the middle of the organization. Yeah. I think too, this kind of goes back to Jose Iglesias trade and getting a guy like Garrett Stallings is that, you know, Elijah's just building that depth and you have all of the, if you take those two combined rosters, these, these roster projections we have, and you're hoping if just a few of these guys break out, I mean, you've got your your depth guys here. You've got your reserves here, like an Anthony Servideo. He may not be a starting shortstop at the major league level, but that's a guy you can groom to be you know, your utility infielder uh, at some point. You've got Toby Welk behind a, a Gunnar Henderson and a Kobe Mayo. That seems like a pretty good guy if he can hit advanced pitching, a good guy to have in, in, in your rotation uh, down there. Um, the outfielders, like you mentioned, Stowers, Watson, Riser, and you get to the lower levels, uh, Hudson Haskins. Uh, all these guys, this is depth, and this is depth where if those guys hit, you know, you got an outfield of, let's say, Austin Hayes stays healthy, Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, Yusno Diaz, Heston Kirstad. You have all those guys. And what if Hudson Haskin hits? Well, you trade them away and you get a major league piece. And this is what Elias is doing when you build up these deep lineups. When your number nine hitter in low A next year is probably going to be a pretty good guy in like a Daryl Hernandez. Um, that's depth that this organization is going to build from. And, you know, I think there's a lot to say about that. Yeah, McPhail, he said, what, grow the arms by the bats? <laughs> Elias seems to be grow the bats by the arms. So I'm going to ask you this, and this is also in light of the Iglesias trade. 
if Ryland Bannon, um, first off, do you think it makes it more likely that Bannon starts year in the majors rather than AAA? And if Bannon would start the year in the majors, how would you uh, redo that infield at AAA? Yeah, this is a good question. I do think Bannon has a better chance to start the year on the major league level, and it kind of makes uh, the comments that Elias made after he added him to the 40-man roster make a lot more sense where he said, this is a guy that's going to be competing for the second and third base spot out of spring training, if not just be a, like start the year on the bench. And that makes a lot more sense now that Alberto's gone, Iglesias is gone. There's plenty of room now to work uh, for him to battle his way on. And if that is the case... I think I would – didn't they have Richie Martin uh, working out at third base last this past spring training? So I think you could see like a Mason McCoy-Richie Martin combination between shortstop and third base. Uh, maybe they split time there, which with so many shortstops in an organization, that's kind of what I had to do all throughout. Like I have A.J. Graffinino, Caden Grenier, and Adam Hall kind of rotating between shortstop, third base, and just getting their bat in the lineup at DH. But – yeah, I think I'd go with Mason McCoy at short, maybe Richie Martin at third, and have them each play three games a week at short. Okay, it is interesting the way the Orioles are going to be able to move this around, and that really struck me when I was looking at your rosters, because when I went down to double A and I saw Graffinino at D8, so I'm like, hold on, what? And then I looked <laughs> I at the two, I looked at the infielders there, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense now, because there's so much um, talent, and there's a little bit of upside at that level, that you're going to have to find at bats is a good problem to have but you're going to have to find at bats for these players and then innings at you know the middle infield spots um when you're bumping someone who and i know this is someone that uh fans have a kind of prospect fatigue with with but when you're bumping caden grenier who has a pretty good reputation for his glove at shortstop to third base that should tell you something yeah that was the hardest thing i didn't want people to think i thought grafanino was just some bopper at the plate who couldn't field but uh you know i just figured that at shortstop uh who did i put there it, uh adam hall i just feel like he has the more pedigree to to start at least on opening day at shortstop and then you know he might play some second base and you get a grenier hall and grafanino infield and give colin a rest or put him at the h so yeah there's just a lot of options and like nick said earlier elias loves versatility so i think he's going to be constantly trying to get guys to Rove around, we're going to have a team of 25 Ben Zobrist uh, in 2024. Yeah. I, Go ahead, Nick. I, I was going to say, it's, it's a key year, too, for guys like Adam Hall. If I think double a, putting him at double-A is the right spot, and, and I think whether it's second base or shortstop, you're going to have a lot of guys at that level like you have here, Greg Cullen, uh, Grenier Hall, Graffinino, and I'm sure there are going to be others there you could put on that roster, but I think Adam Hall challenging him at double-A and saying this is your chance because there there is a hole there there is this opening at second base and shortstop at the major league level and he's a guy I think a lot of Orioles fans are kind of split on but if he can show something at the double A level and now I think you start talking you start taking Adam Hall a little bit more seriously as a really good prospect in this system so I think it's a, the double A roster I, I like a lot because a lot of these guys are going to face their first challenges in this minor league system, and it's going to be interesting to see which of these guys rise to that challenge. And to play devil's advocate for that, if Adam Hall struggles a bit, then you got Jordan Westberg, Anthony Servideo, all these, you know, the cavalry coming right behind them. So they really, these guys at AA, they have to perform Newstrom. Like, you don't want, this is his chance to break out finally, or else Stowers, Watson, etc. They're going to pass him by. So it's kind of a, an interesting roster at AA for that reason. Yeah, that's a good point that both of you make. I feel like looking at this double-A roster, I feel like other than Adley Rutzman, where I think the expectations are pretty clear and what we should see on the field will probably meet those expectations, it feels like everybody else at double-A does have something to prove coming into this year. Yeah, and and I think that could be a good catalyst for some, you know, uh, some breakouts. So we'll see. Yeah, there's competition in the system now. <laughs> I mean, even like you're, you're Blaine Knight uh, rounding out that double A rotation. If you don't, if you pitch like you did in Frederick last year, you're done. You're gone. There's smaller rosters, which, and I think that's a com- that's a whole other conversation we can talk about for when we kind of figure out which teams are here, which teams are gone. But you're gonna have smaller rosters. Uh, there's more competition in the system, and it's forcing these guys to get better. So you know, 
two years ago, you know, Robert Newsham could just hang around in double A. There's no one coming up behind him. He can take his time. But now if he doesn't perform by the all-star break next year, if there is an all-star break in minor leagues next year, um, like you said, he's gone. He's going to lose his job. Yeah, no time yeah. anymore. So I'm gonna. I know we're gonna talk about this more when we start putting our, together our top thirty list, which will probably be sometime next month. But I'm gonna start with you, Nick. Is there one sleeper on Bob's four rosters that you think people should be keeping an eye on going into 2021? Hmm, that's a really, really good question. Uh, Newstrom is one of my guys that I do think there. I like the power. And I think he's a Big Ten guy, came up with Mason McCoy. I believe they were teammates at University of Iowa. I've liked him since the Orioles grabbed him. Uh, He plays a really good right field, too. I love the defense. Uh, But a lot of injuries there. So it's a make-or-break year for him. Um, I have to throw out the name Shelton Perkins because that's my guy. We both went to the same school. Um, and he's basically, forget Hunter Harvey, Orioles have their future closer down the, in uh, minor leagues with Shelton Perkins. Um, I think you're, I, I like one of these outfielders, either your Zach Watsons or your Kyle Stowers. I think one of those two guys, for whatever reason, you're going to see another outfielder, at least one, probably two, uh, over the next year, really step up and, and really add to this outfield depth problem, but really good problem to have. Good choices. Uh, for me personally, I keep hearing Kyle Bradish's name come up when they talk. When I hear like John Mioli on Baseball America uh, talking about the prospects, when I hear on I think it was Prospects Live. Uh, I, anyway, I've heard you know heard it multiple times. Kyle Bradish, Kyle Bradish, Kyle Bradish. He's closing in on top ten. Meanwhile, he's I think on MLB Pipeline. He's like in the twenties, and he's really I think. He might have been a guy that broke out this year, and we just don't know yet. And as soon as the double-A season starts, and we're going to be like, Grayson Rodriguez, the yellow hall, who? <laughs> All about Kyle Bradish now. No. But just think that top three in that rotation, I think that's going to be kind of like we saw uh, last year with uh, Kramer, Lowther, and Wells. I think, it, if not better, obviously, with more pedigree. But I just think Kyle Bradish, just from what I'm reading and, and hearing about the system, uh, sounds like he's a guy to look out for. Maybe that Dylan Bundy trade uh, will turn out to be pretty great. Yeah, I think in a similar vein for me, the guy that I'm most intrigued by is Easton Lucas. Uh, he came over from Miami in the Zantam DR trade last year. We didn't see him at all, but my sense is that this is a 2019 draft pick. Uh, the Marlins picked him up in the 14th round then, that the Orioles probably had their eye on and that they liked. His numbers in 2019, he actually did get uh, a good amount of time, and I'm looking at the numbers now, 34 and two-thirds innings between the Gulf Coast League and Batavia in the New York Penn League. He was pretty solid, and I think that because he's 24, um, I'm not going to consider that old for the level in 2021, given the circumstances that we're coming out of, uh, or that we hopefully will be coming out of here soon, but... I think that because of his age, if Lucas does get off to a good start, you're talking about a guy that could get to high A pretty quickly. And if he pitches there, you never know. He might be that guy who strings together the really solid season between three levels in the minor leagues. Um, The other one that I throw out there for position players, I'm intrigued with uh, A.J. Graffinino to see what he does. Um, He lost a lot of time with injuries in the Braves system, but if he's healthy next year... I know, if nothing else, the Orioles are going to have a really good defensive middle infielder. And given now, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, but the stated transition going on at the major league level, I kind of wonder if the glove is good and Graffinino's, you know, doing well at double A, do we see him at triple A, and does that line him up for a major league job late in the year? The same can be said for Mason McCoy, who is going to be one level ahead of Graffinino. So I think the advantage would go to McCoy, but... If the Orioles find themselves shuffling through a lot of options between second base and shortstop next year, I wouldn't be shocked if Graffinino plays his way into that conversation. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, another guy I just thought of uh, mentioning is Daryl Hernandez. Uh, he was a young guy, drafted out of high school in 2019. We didn't get to see him when he made his appearance in the GCL. He was right there with Gunnar Henderson. Gunnar Henderson and... Uh, you know, that's a lot of time between 2019 and 2021 for him to fill out, add some weight, you know, build to his frame, and who knows how much he's developed. And he always showed a good eye 
at every step of the way. Well, every step being high school and GCL. But, you know, it seems like he's got a good eye at the plate. And maybe if he's bulked up a bit, uh, he could be a breakout star. I'm going, if Easton Lucas is a starter, I'm going, if we can, pending, uh, vaccine pending, I am going to his first start just because I forget his name every single time it's been brought up on this podcast in that Jonathan Villar trade. So I just want to go see him pitch. He's at the top of my list there just for that reason. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, that article is now on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Bob did a really good job with that. And I know that's a piece that we're going to be referring back to a lot between now and spring training and even when the minor league season starts. So head over to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com to check that out, along with some Ravens coverage and some college sports coverage. Hop on the message board, uh, join in our discussions there. Um, So in the meantime, though, I expect that we're going to be back on the air sometime in the next week or two. Uh, It could be because of the Rule 5 draft if the Orioles select or lose a player. I know that's something we're going to cover, Um, and hopefully we get to – talk about packing Dalton a lot on our next show. Uh, But in addition to that, uh, as we've mentioned on this episode and some of our more recent ones, the minor league uh, reorganization discussions are continuing. There still is no final word for the majority of teams um, in Major League Baseball on what their affiliations are going to look like next year and beyond, including the Orioles. Um, We were kind of hoping that we would have clarity on that this week and that that actually would have been a discussion of this show, but it's looking like now next week will be the earliest that we hear anything there. Um, So hopefully between that and the Rule 5 draft, we'll have uh, something to talk about before we head into the holidays here on on The Verge. But before we sign off on this episode, as always, I'm going to get final thoughts here from uh, Bob and Nick, starting with Nick. Yeah, I think just pay attention to what's going on in the minor leagues. I think it's going to get, uh, I saw earlier this afternoon, like the Staten Island Yankees haven't been told officially by the Yankees that they're getting the X, uh, but they've pretty much put the puzzle pieces together and figured out they are getting the X uh, without being told, and they're suing the Yankees and Major League Baseball. Uh, it's going to get ugly. You're going to have a lot of people out of a job, a lot of baseball players out of jobs, uh, announcers, stats, stats people, I mean, all the way down. Um Towns are going to lose. Uh, I know they're coming up with these new leagues, these draft leagues and college leagues, but they don't have the same connection I think you do as, as a minor league team with a, with a pro affiliate. So it's it's going to get ugly, I think, here soon down the minor leagues, unfortunately. Um, and we'll see what happens. I know we're going to lose at least one Orioles affiliate, and it's looking like it could be Frederick. But again, a lot of these teams are completely in the dark. So it could be Norfolk. It could even be Bowie. We just don't know. Um, but hopefully it, it all works out in the end. And Stay safe through these next couple of weeks because we're almost there. We're almost at the finish line. Absolutely. And I, I think I said it in the article, I think my prediction is Frederick's out, Aberdeen's in as the new high A team. And while that would be devastating for the town of Frederick, uh, not too bad for me since Aberdeen is like 10 minutes away. I could go see a few more games during the season. But uh, the only thing I'll mention is if you enjoyed my article this month about the projections of the rosters, You might want to pay attention to the message board during the minor league season because I like to update it almost every day as much as I can on the regular. Uh, Every time there's a starting pitcher that goes, or every day I'll just update the stats of the starting rotation. And last this past season I was about to start doing the same thing for position players, and then obviously we had no minor league season. But I'm planning on doing that again, so looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely something we missed. uh this past season, but hoping to have that back in 2021. I'm just going to throw this out um, before we sign off as an observation, not necessarily related to the Orioles, but to the offseason as a whole, because uh, Mark Feinsand had a really interesting tweet. He's a reporter at um, MLB and an MLB Network Insider. Uh, He tweeted this out last night. Uh, Last year, 56 players were non-tendered. The predictions this year that the predictions that this year would see a huge increase proved incorrect with the total at 59. So in other words, only three more players were non-tendered in 2020 than were non-tendered in 2019. Um, there is still a lot we don't know about this offseason. Do I expect the free agent market to be slow? Yes, but I also would not have expected the Atlanta Braves to pay $11 million for Drew Smiley and then immediately followed up with $15 million for Charlie Morton. 
Uh, we still don't have the big free agents uh, off the market. I'm mainly looking at George Springer, Trevor Bauer, and JT Real Muto. Uh, the contracts they get might tell us uh, a lot about how the offseason is going to go from there, or they might not tell us anything. Uh, regardless, though, I think this is going to be an offseason with a lot of things that are unpredictable. Uh, I have not really figured out yet what's going on, because I definitely bought into the idea that things were going to be slower. And I think for a lot of players, that is going to be the case. But I think we're seeing right now where, as I mentioned with the Braves, if teams uh, want to pay for their for players, they're still going to do it. Yeah. And the thing I saw was that, yeah, while there wasn't as many non-tenders, there were like double the amount of people that agreed to terms before uh, tenders, or, you know, the contracts were offered or before the arbitration numbers are going to be swept up. So it seems like maybe players felt more pressure to accept the offers that were being given to them, but at least they kept the job. Yeah. Shocker, the billionaire owners are not poor. That's, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. As I said, we should probably be back on the air in the next week or two to uh, recap the Rule 5 draft and hopefully uh, be able to give you a little bit clearer picture of how minor league baseball is going to look. Uh, for next season, but in the meantime, continue to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com and follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. Um, our Twitter account is really active right now, as it will be throughout the off season going into 2021. So be sure to check us out there. Uh, for Nick Stevens and Bob Phelan, this is uh, Zach Spedden. Thanks for listening. <laughs>